Chapter Nine of the Mystery of the Pinckney Draft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the Pinckney Draft by Charles C. Knott. Chapter Nine, The Observations. The observations of Pinckney, in Madison's estimation, fully sustained his arguments and justified his attacks on the verity of the draft in the State Department. The publication so entitled is a small pamphlet of twenty-seven pages. It has the following title page, Observations of the Plan of Government Submitted to the Federal Convention in Philadelphia on the 28th of May, 1787, by Mr. Charles Pinckney, delegate from the State of South Carolina, delivered at different times in the course of their discussions. New York printed by francis childs two copies of this are in the library of the new york historical society and it is reprinted in moore's american eloquence it bears no date but we learn from madison's letter to washington before quoted that it must have been published before the fourteenth of october seventeen eighty seven that is to say immediately after the dissolution of the convention on the 17th of September. Madison unquestionably relied upon this pamphlet as containing the highest evidence against the verity of the draft in the State Department. The anxiety which he showed to obtain it, and the care with which he brought it to the attention of those who were, or who in the future might be interested in the matter, make it plain that he regarded the observations as a conservatory of admissions which pinckney would not deny if he were living and which his friends could not controvert now that pinckney was dead the first record we have of madison's reliance on this pamphlet is a memorandum found among his papers which bears no date but which must have been written prior to april sixth eighteen thirty one for mr paulding much curiosity and some comment have been exerted by the marvelous identities in a plan of government proposed by charles pinckney in the convention of seventeen eighty seven as published in the journals with the text of the constitution as finally agreed to i find among my pamphlets a copy of a small one entitled observations on the plan of government submitted to the federal convention in philadelphia on the twenty eighth of may by mr c pinckney a delegate from south carolina delivered at different times in the convention the copy is so defaced and mutilated that it is impossible to make out enough of the plan as referred to in the observations for a due comparison of it with that printed in the journal the pamphlet was printed in New York by Francis Childs. The year is defaced. It must have been not very long after the close of the convention, and with the sanction, at least, of Mr. Pinckney himself. It has occurred to me that a copy may be attainable in the printing office, if still kept up, or in some of the libraries or historical collections in the city. When you can snatch a moment, in your walks with other views, for a call at such places, you will promote an object of some little interest as well as delicacy by ascertaining whether the article in question can be met with. 
I have, among my manuscript papers, lights on the subject. The pamphlet of Mr. P. could not fail to add to them. April, 1831. At some time subsequent to the 6th of April, he wrote to Mr. Paulding, saying that in a previous letter, I requested you to make an inquiry concerning a small pamphlet of Charles Pinckney printed at the close of the Federal Convention of 1787, and on the 6th of June he again wrote to Mr. Paulding, June 6, 1831. Dear Sir, since my letter answering yours of April 6th, in which I requested you to make an inquiry concerning a small pamphlet of Charles Pinckney, printed at the close of the Federal Convention of 1787, it has occurred to me that the pamphlet might not have been put in circulation, but only presented to his friends, etc. In that way I may have become possessed of the copy to which I referred as in a damaged state, on this supposition, the only chance of success must be among the books, etc., of individuals on the list of Mr. Pinckney's political associates and friends. Of those who belong to New York, I recollect no one so likely to have received a copy as Rufus King. If that was the case, it may remain with his representative, and I would suggest an informal resort to that quarter with the hope that you will pardon this further tax on your kindness. On the 27th of June, he wrote to Mr. Paulding for the third time regarding the observations. June 27, 1831. Dear Sir, With your favor on the 20th instant, I received the volume of pamphlets containing that of Mr. Charles Pinckney, for which I am indebted to your obliging researches. The volume shall be duly returned, and in the meantime duly taken care of. I have not sufficiently examined the pamphlet in question, but I have no doubt that it throws light on the subject to which it has relation. On the 25th of November he wrote at length to Jared Sparks, setting forth all his objections to the draft, and added, Further discrepancies might be found in the observations of Mr. Pinckney, printed in a pamphlet by Francis Childs, in New York, shortly after the close of the convention. I have a copy too mutilated for use, but it may probably be preserved in some of your historical repositories. On the 5th of June, 1835, he wrote to Judge Durer, Other discrepancies will be found in a source also within your reach, in a pamphlet published by Mr. Pinckney, soon after the close of the convention, in which he refers to parts of his plan which are at variance with the document in the printed journal. A friend who has examined and compared the two documents has pointed out the discrepancies noted below. Then follows the list of discrepancies pointed out by a friend, and in this letter he refers Judge Dewar to the Library of the Historical Society of New York as the place where a copy of the observations can be found. The following paragraphs from the observations contain all that bears upon the contents of the draft, and all upon which Madison relied. There is no one, I believe, who doubts there is something particularly alarming in the present conjuncture. 
there is hardly a man in or out of office who holds any other language. Our government is despised. Our laws are robbed of their respected terrors. Their inaction is a subject of ridicule, and their exertion of abhorrence and opposition, rank and office have lost their reverence and effect. Our foreign politics are as much deranged as our domestic economy. Our friends are slackened in their affection, and our citizens loosened from their obedience. We know neither how to yield nor how to enforce. Hardly anything abroad or at home is sound and entire. Disconnection and confusion in offices, in states and in parties, prevail throughout every part of the Union. These are facts universally admitted and lamented. Be assured that, however unfashionable for the moment your sentiments may be, yet, if your system is accommodated to the situation of the Union, and founded in wise and liberal principles, it will in time be consented to. An energetic government is our true policy, and it will at last be discovered and prevail. Presuming that the question will be taken up de novo, I do not conceive it necessary to go into minute detail of the defects of the present Confederation, but request permission to submit, with deference to the House, the draft of a government which I have formed for the Union. The defects of the present will appear in the course of the examination. I shall give each article that either materially varies or is new. I well know the science of government is at once a delicate and difficult one, and none more so than that of republics. I confess my situation or experience have not been such as to enable me to form the clearest and justest opinions. The sentiments I shall offer are the result of not so much reflection as I could have wished. The plan will admit of important amendments. I do not mean at once to offer it for the consideration of the House, but have taken the liberty of mentioning it because it was my duty to do so. The first important alteration is that of the principle of representation and the distribution of the different powers of government. In the federal councils, each state ought to have a weight in proportion to its importance, and no state is justly entitled to greater. A representation is a sign of the reality. Upon this principle, however abused, the Parliament of Great Britain is formed, and it has been universally adopted by the states in the formation of their legislatures. In the Parliament of Great Britain, as well as in most and the best instituted legislatures of the states, we find not only two branches, but in some a council of revision, consisting of their executive and principal officers of government. This I consider as an improvement in legislation, and have therefore incorporated it as a part of the system. The Senate I propose to have elected by the House of Delegates upon proportionable principles, in the manner I have stated, which, though rotative, will give a sufficient degree of stability and independence. The districts into which the Union is to be divided will be so apportioned as to give to each its due weight, and the Senate, calculated in this, as it ought to be in every government, 
to represent the wealth of the nation. The executive should be appointed septennially, but his eligibility ought not to be limited. He is not a branch of the legislature farther than as a part of the Council of Revision, and the suffering him to continue eligible will not only be the means of ensuring his good behavior, but serve to render the office more respectable. The fourth article, respecting the extending the rights of the citizens of each state throughout the United States, the delivery of fugitives from justice upon demand, and the giving full faith and credit to the records and proceedings of each, is formed exactly upon the principles of the fourth article of the present Confederation, except with this difference, that the demand of the executive of a state for any fugitive criminal offender shall be complied with. It is now confined to treason, felony, or other high misdemeanor, but as there is no good reason for confining it to those crimes, no distinction ought to exist, and a state should always be at liberty to demand a fugitive from its justice, let his crime be what it may. The fifth article, declaring that individual states shall not exercise certain powers, is also founded on the same principle as the sixth of the confederation the next is an important alteration of the federal system and is intended to give the united states in congress not only a revision of the legislative acts of each state but a negative upon all such as shall appear to them improper i apprehend the true intention of the states in uniting is to have a firm national government capable of effectually executing its acts and dispensing its benefits and protection. In it alone can be vested those powers and prerogatives which more particularly distinguish a sovereign state. The members which compose the superintending government are to be considered merely as parts of a great whole, and only suffered to retain the powers necessary to the administration of their state systems the idea which has been so long and falsely entertained of each being a sovereign state must be given up for it is absurd to suppose there can be more than one sovereignty within a government the states should retain nothing more than mere local legislation which as districts of a federal government they can exercise more to the benefit of their particular inhabitants than if it was vested in a supreme council but in every foreign concern as well as in those internal regulations which respecting the whole ought to be uniform and national the states must not be suffered to interfere no act of the federal government in pursuance of its constitutional powers ought by any means to be within the control of the state legislatures if it is experience warrants me in asserting they will assuredly interfere and defeat its operation the next article proposes to invest a number of exclusive rights delegated by the present confederation with this alteration that it is intended to give the unqualified power of raising troops either in time of peace or war in any manner the union may direct it does not confine them to raise troops by quotas on particular states or to give them the right of appointing regimental officers 
but enables congress to raise troops as they shall think proper and to appoint all the officers it also contains a provision for empowering congress to levy taxes upon the states agreeable to the rule now in use an enumeration of the white inhabitants and three-fifths of other descriptions the seventh article invests the united states with the complete power of regulating the trade of the union and levying such imposts and duties upon the same for the use of the united states as shall in the opinion of congress be necessary and expedient the eighth article only varies so far from the present as in the article of the post office to give the federal government a power not only to exact as much postage as will bear the expense of the office but also for the purpose of raising a revenue congress had this in contemplation some time since and there can be no objection as it is presumed in the course of a few years the post office will be capable of yielding a considerable sum to the public treasury the ninth article respecting the appointment of federal courts for deciding territorial controversies between different states is the same with that in the confederation but this may with propriety be left to the supreme judiciary the tenth article gives congress a right to institute all such offices as are necessary for managing the concerns of the union of erecting a federal judicial court for the purposes therein specified and of appointing courts of admiralty for the trial of maritime causes in the states respectively the exclusive right of coining money regulating its alloy and determining in what species of money the common treasury shall be supplied is essential to assuring the federal funds in all those important questions where the present confederation has made the assent of nine states necessary i have made the assent of two-thirds of both houses when assembled in congress and added to the number the regulation of trade and acts for levying an impost and raising a revenue the exclusive right of establishing regulations for the government of the militia of the united states ought certainly to be vested in the federal council the article empowering the united states to admit new states into the confederacy is become indispensable from the separation of certain districts from the original states and the increasing population and consequence of the western territory i have also added an article authorizing the united states upon the petition from the majority of the citizens of any state or convention authorized for that purpose and of the legislature of the state to which they wish to be annexed or of the states among which they are willing to be divided to consent to such junction or division on the term mentioned in the article the federal government should also possess the exclusive right of declaring on what terms the privileges of citizenship and naturalization should be extended to foreigners the sixteenth article proposes to declare that if it should hereafter appear necessary to the united states to recommend the grant of any additional powers that the assent of a given number of the states shall be sufficient to invest them and bind the union as fully as if they had been confirmed by the legislatures of all the states 
the principles of this and the article which provides for the future alteration of the constitution by its being first agreed to in congress and ratified by a certain proportion of the legislatures are precisely the same there is also in the articles a provision respecting the attendance of the members of both houses it is proposed that they shall be the judges of their own rules and proceedings nominate their own officers and be obliged after accepting their appointments to attend the stated meetings of the legislature the penalties under which their attendance is required are such as to ensure it as we are to suppose no man would willingly expose himself to the ignominy of a disqualification the next article provides for the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus the trial by jury in all cases criminal as well as civil the freedom of the press and the prevention of religious tests as qualifications to offices of trust or emolument there is also an authority to the national legislature permanently to fix the seat of the general government to secure to authors the exclusive right to their performances and discoveries and to establish a federal university there are other articles but of subordinate consideration in opening the subject the limits of my present observations would only permit me to touch the outlines in these i have endeavored to unite and apply as far as the matter of the union would permit the excellencies of such of the state's constitutions as have been most approved i ought again to apologize for presuming to intrude my sentiments upon a subject of such difficulty and importance it is one that i have for a considerable time attended to i am doubtful whether the convention will at first be inclined to proceed as far as i have intended but this i think may be safely asserted that upon a clear and comprehensive view of the relative situation of the union and its members we shall be convinced of the policy of concentrating in the federal head a complete supremacy in the affairs of government leaving only to the states such powers as may be necessary for the management of their internal concerns the first comment to be made on this speech of pinckney's is that it was never made and that no speech whatever was made by him when he presented his draft to the convention upon this question of fact there are two witnesses madison and yates the evidence which they have left to us is negative and positive the one showing inferentially what could not have occurred in the convention on the twenty ninth of may seventeen eighty seven and the other stating positively what did occur the one absolutely silent as to any speech by pinckney the other telling us that mr pinckney a member from south carolina then added that he had reduced his ideas of a new government to a system which he then read madison has written for us an account of the manner in which he took his notes and wrote out his journal a most interesting account showing us the method he pursued the efforts which he made and reminding us how much we owe him for his fidelity to his self-imposed task 
the curiosity I had felt during my researches into the history of the most distinguished confederacies, particularly those of antiquity, and the deficiency I found in the means of satisfying it, more especially in what related to the process, the principles, the reasons, and the anticipations which prevailed in the formation of them, determined me to preserve, as far as I could, an exact account of what might pass in the convention while executing its trust, with the magnitude of which I was duly impressed, as I was by the gratification promised to future curiosity by an authentic exhibition of the objects, the opinions, and the reasonings from which the new system of government was to receive its peculiar structure and organization nor was i unaware of the value of such a contribution to the fund of materials to the history of a constitution on which would be staked the happiness of a people great even in its infancy and possibly the cause of liberty throughout the world in pursuance of the task i had assumed i chose a seat in front of the presiding member with the other members on my right and left hands in this favorable position, for hearing all that passed, I noted in terms legible, and in abbreviations and marks intelligible to myself, what was read from the chair or spoken by the members, and losing not a moment unnecessarily between the adjournment and reassembling of the convention, I was enabled to write out my daily notes during the session, or within a few finishing days after its close, in the extent and form preserved, in my own hand, on my files. In the labor and correctness of this, I was not a little aided by practice, and by a familiarity with the style and the train of observation and reasoning which characterized the principal speakers. It happened, also, that I was not absent a single day, nor more than a casual fraction of an hour in any day, so that I could not have lost a single speech, unless a very short one. Yates was, at the time of writing his minutes, forty-nine years of age. During the Revolution he had written political essays highly esteemed over the signature of the Rough Hewer. He had been for eleven years a judge of the Supreme Court of New York a judge of the old school before the days of stenographers and printed arguments and was well trained in taking notes of what counsel said the minutes of yates are manifestly the work of a man accustomed to take down the ideas rather than the words of public speakers his reports of the debates are briefer than madison's showing much less of the reporter and much more of the lawyer or judge accustomed to analyze and to note the scope and sense of an argument his report of the chief speech of pinckney that of june twenty fifth when compared with the full speech written out by pinckney for madison is a remarkably clear and accurate and full abstract it is also valuable as giving us an abstract of the conclusion of the speech which pinckney neglected to furnish madison says in his letter to judge dewar mr yates's notes as you observe are very inaccurate they are also in some respects grossly erroneous 
there are indeed mistakes resulting from his non-acquaintance with the delegates and especially in his confusing the names of the two pinckneys the first name of each being the same as the first name of the other and both being delegates from the same state but be that as it may yates correctly characterized the speech of randolph as long and elaborate and pinckney's draft as a system of a new government and he certainly knew enough to distinguish between the delivery of a long speech and the reading of a formal document the fact therefore must be regarded as established as firmly as any fact recorded in the annals of the convention that on the day when pinckney presented his draft to the convention he did not deliver and could not have delivered a speech making twenty-seven pages of printed matter there is another fact to be considered in connection with the foregoing between the opening statements of the observations and the title of the pamphlet there is a flat contradiction in the speech he says expressly that the plan will admit of important amendments that he does not seem to offer it for the consideration of the house that he has taken the liberty of mentioning it because it was his duty to do so in the title to the pamphlet he says plan of government submitted to the federal convention in philadelphia on the twenty eighth of may seventeen eighty seven it is plain that the speech and its title were written at different times and that in this the two are irreconcilable it is also plain that pinckney when he wrote a title for the printer in new york had forgotten the detail of the contents of the speech and did not take the trouble to examine it we may therefore conclude that the two events were far apart the one having taken place in charleston before the assembling of the convention and the other taking place in new york when the publication of the speech required that a title should be given to it furthermore the title to the speech contains a significant error in saying that the plan of government was submitted to the convention on the twenty eighth of may for the first days of the convention were not days to be quickly forgotten the day fixed for the meeting of the delegates in convention was monday may fourteenth seventeen eighty seven washington notwithstanding his painful illness during the winter and the expected death of his mother was among the first who arrived in philadelphia on the twenty seventh of april he had written to knox though so much afflicted with a rheumatic complaint of which i have not been entirely free for six months as to be under the necessity of carrying my arm in a sling for the last ten days i had fixed on monday next for my departure and had made every necessary arrangement for the purpose when within this hour i am called by an express who assures me not a moment is to be lost to see a mother and only sister who are supposed to be in the agonies of death expire and i am hastening to obey this melancholy call after having just buried a brother who was the intimate companion of my youth and the friend of my ripening age this journey of mine then one hundred miles in the disordered frame of my body will i am persuaded 
unfit me for the intended trip to Philadelphia. But Washington, though he knew it not, was then approaching the verge of his third cycle of illustrious service rendered to his country, the country he assembled out of chaos. Madison, writing to Jefferson, then in Paris, on Tuesday the 15th of May, happily recorded the fact that Washington, true to his life record, was on the ground when he should have been. Monday last was the day for the meeting of the convention. The number as yet assembled is but small. Among the few is General Washington, who arrived on Sunday evening, amidst the acclamations of the people, as well as more sober marks of the affection and veneration which continued to be felt for his character. But a quorum of lesser men did not appear until Friday, May 25th. On that day nine states were represented by twenty-nine delegates, among whom was Charles Pinckney, on whose motion a committee was appointed, of which he was one, to prepare standing rules and orders. The only other business was the election of Washington as president, and Major William Jackson as secretary. On Monday, May 28th, the convention next met, when Mr. Wythe, from the Committee for Preparing Rules, made a report which employed the deliberations of this day. Tuesday, May 29th, was the great day when Randolph opened the main business and presented the Virginia resolutions, and Pinckney laid before the House the draft of a federal government. These were not days to be easily confounded. But between the presentation of the draft to the convention and the writing of the title for the printer in New York, four months had elapsed crowded with labor and excitement, and Pinckney had forgotten the date of the most eventful day of his life. The error of this date means a great deal. In his letter to the Secretary of State covering the draft in the department, Pinckney says that he has then four or five drafts of the Constitution in his possession. It is certain that the draft in the department conforms much more closely to the draft which he presented to the convention than to the draft which he describes in the observations. If we consider the facts established, as we must, that the observations were written before the assembling of the convention, that they were written many months before their publication, that they were not examined or revised when they were published, it is easily within the range of possibilities, if not of probabilities, that the draft which formed the text of the discourse was one of the four or five which Pinckney had drawn at various times, and was not the one which he finally submitted to the convention. If the observations were what they pretend to be, the text of a real speech actually spoken at the time when Pinckney was about to present his draft to the convention, they would be very good secondary evidence of the contents of the paper which he held in his hand, and which he then and there presented, and thereby parted company with. But a speech which was never spoken to suppositional auditors, who never heard it, is not a public declaration of the contents of another paper. The observations are not a speech, 
because they are cast in the form of a speech. They are simply a paper which must have been written in Charleston before the assembling of the convention, or, possibly, in New York after the convention had been dissolved, and whenever written Pinckney may have had before him another of the four or five constitutions which he had drafted. With the uncovering of the fact that this paper was not contemporaneous, and that it did not necessarily refer to the particular copy of the draft which Pinckney presented to the convention on the 29th of May, the supposed value of the observations as evidence to impeach the integrity of the draft in the State Department is blown to pieces. If this were a suit between Madison and Pinckney, it might be held that Pinckney would be stopped from questioning the veracity of the paper which he wrote, and made public, or the actuality of the facts which it sets forth. But an estoppel which, in the words of Coke, concludeth a man to allege the truth, does not extend to the student of constitutional history. He is not a party to that record, and is at liberty to use it for what it may be worth against Pinckney, or for Pinckney, to overthrow the draft or to substantiate the draft, to use it in any way which will tend to clear the situation from error and authenticate the true history of the Constitution. Madison, in his Note to the Plan, regarded Article Eight as remarkable also for the circumstance that whilst it specifies the functions of the President, no provision is contained in the paper for the election of such an officer. The plain, unquestionable purpose of Madison, when so writing, was to impress upon the American mind the improbability, the almost impossibility, of Pinckney's having neglected to provide for the election of the President, while actually establishing the office and defining the functions of the officer, and hence that the paper which is so remarkable for the omission cannot be true copy of the one presented to the convention, and the inevitable inference from this is that the real draft, the one presented to the convention on the 29th of May, contained and must have contained, and could not have overlooked the needed provision declaring how the president should be chosen. The choosing of the president by means of electoral colleges, in which each state should have a proportionate power equal to its total representation in the two houses of Congress, was one of the notable compromises between the large and small states, and what Madison says must excite the curiosity of the constitutional student to know in what manner Pinckney provided in his draft for the choosing of the president and whether he attempted a compromise. The original draft is lost, but here Madison appears with the observations, which he fortunately saw in 1787, and which he fortunately remembered in 1831, and which, remembering, he brought to light and made an authority. And these observations, according to Madison, presumptively set forth what the original draft contained so fully and accurately that upon the faith of them 
we can and must reject the copy of the draft which pinckney produced and placed in the state department therefore we may turn to the observations with unusual interest to ascertain whether pinckney provided and in what manner he provided for the choosing of the president we find that the observations are as silent as the draft in the state department they are not more silent however if the observations said nothing and were absolutely silent on the subject of the president it might be a casual oversight of the writer but the observations agree with article eight both recognize the executive as vested in one person both limit his term of office the one to seven the other to x years both expressly declare that he shall be re-eligible both are silent as to the means by which he shall be chosen the observations here are little more than a paraphrase of article eight madison regarded the omission to provide for so vitally important a thing as the choosing of the president as remarkable but the more remarkable the omission the more significant the coincidence the explanation of pinckney's conduct and of the contradictions between his statements in the observations and the facts appearing on the records of the convention including in the term the madison journal and the yates minutes is i think the following the first business day of the convention probably was the most impressive day of all its sittings there were less than forty delegates present but among them were the most distinguished men of the country washington hamilton rufus king david Beerley, both robert and governor morris george reed george mason george wythe john rutledge john dickinson and elbridge jerry a painful anxiety existed concerning everything which lay before them the method of procedure the specific subjects to be considered the prejudices of the different states the views and plans and projects of the different members randolph as heretofore has been said opened the great business which was to result either in the formation of a national government or in the dissolution of the feeble confederation which existed by the presentation of the abstract propositions which the delegates from virginia had formulated for the consideration of the convention and by a masterly address in which he set forth the perils of the hour and the difficulties to be overcome when he concluded his solemn and philosophical exposition of the impending problems the convention adjourned as well it might pinckney must have been impressed by this he had studied the field long and intelligently but there were now waters before him which were beyond his depth difficulties which he had not considered prejudices and jealousies for which he had formulated no compromise it was not the time for the man believed to be the youngest member to harangue the convention on his scheme for a new government pinckney unquestionably had prepared a written speech in his study in charleston 
it was his strategic purpose to deliver the speech at the opening of the convention and draw forth expressions of opinion concerning his scheme for a national government after which he would modify his plan and when modified to suit himself or to suit a majority of the members he would present it but when the time came to speak he saw that the convention was in no humor to listen to an oration about his plan and that the business before them would be the consideration and discussion of abstract propositions one by one as set forth in the virginia resolutions and that no plan would be considered until the delegates should learn by intelligent discussion what they wanted to formulate he therefore wisely reversed his strategy withholding the speech but presenting the draft thereby placing himself on the record and establishing what in patent law would be called priority of invention after the great work was done and the constitution had gone forth to the world pinckney knew that his draft was buried in the secrecy of the proceedings he too like many another effusive young man may have thought his speech too good to be lost certainly he would not resist the temptation of revealing what he had written and of recording the great part he had played among the eminent actors in the convention he avoided violating the pledge of secrecy by revealing no act or proceeding of the convention not even that his plan had been presented and referred and it is fair to say that while he acted like a boy he also gave out the full record in a manly way the absurdities in his draft as some of his provisions must have seemed to many intelligent men were set forth the provisions which failed were set forth the propositions which he himself had abandoned and opposed were set forth there was no tampering with the record there are passages in some of his imperfectly reported speeches in the convention which bear some resemblance to his discursive rhetorical flights in the observations and these he may have thought justified the title with which he prefaced the publication the two lines on the title page delivered at different times in the course of their discussions are in very small type and appear much as if they had been crowded into a printer's proof as if they had been an afterthought but however that may be one thing is certain that the speech setting forth the contents of his plan was never made in the convention the observations sustain the draft in the state department in matters of substance but not in order and arrangement the observations also allude to provisions which are not in the draft in the state department provisions which may or may not have been in the draft which was presented to the convention and these i shall subsequently examine as to the variance in order and arrangement there are two things which should be considered first as a matter of antiquarian research it would be interesting and satisfactory to ascertain that the one draft was a facsimile or exact duplicate of the other but where the purpose of the inquiry as in this case 
is to ascertain what contributions the draft of Pinckney made to the Constitution of the United States, it is wholly immaterial whether one provision followed another, or preceded it, or was far removed from it. The second thing to be remembered is that the draft of the Committee of Detail, so far as it agrees in order and arrangement with the draft in the State Department, furnishes us with presumptive evidence of the order and arrangement in the draft which was presented to the convention. A comparison of the two will show that the variances are so trivial that they are not worthy of further consideration. As we have seen, chapter 6, Madison did not cite the observations in the note of Mr. Madison to the plan of Charles Pinckney, but did prepare a footnote for the note to be appended to and published with it by his future editor, who he then believed would be Mrs. Madison. Why he did not cite or set forth in his own note the striking discrepancies set forth in the footnote, but planned and arranged that they should be brought before the public by his editor, has seemed inexplicable hitherto. The reason is now plain. He did not wish to assume the responsibility of citing the pamphlet of Pinckney because he knew that it consisted of a speech which was never made. Madison cited the observations as the eighth article and the fifth article of Pinckney's draft to secure its condemnation, but of each he might say as Balak the son of Zippor said in the prophet of old, I took thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast blessed them. He hunted for the observations, he found them, he brought them to his knowledge of men, he appealed to them, he made them authority by which Pinckney should be judged out of his own mouth, and lo, they furnish the strongest confirmation of the verity of the draft which he attacked. The observations seem to have been a fateful thing, fatal to whichever party relied upon them. Madison exhumed them and believed that they would destroy the pretensions of Pinckney and vindicate himself, and they have but demonstrated the superficiality of his own investigation and the baselessness of his deductions. Pinckney, fearing that the part which he had played in the convention would never be known, that his great contribution to the Constitution might never receive so much as the notice of men, impelled by his boyish egoism, and by what Madison called, with reference to another contemporaneous publication, his appetite for expected praise, improperly laid them before the world and they have done more than any other one thing to smirch his good name and bury in oblivion the great work of his life. End of chapter 9